Revelation chapter 14. If you'll turn there in your Bibles or your iPads or your phones or whatever you got. Revelation 14. And Lord, we ask in Jesus' name by your great grace, you'd give us ears to hear what your spirit is saying to the church. To open unto us what it is that you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Well, often when you think of the book of Revelation, you think about the subject matter found in chapters 12, 13, and 14. And uh, often um, you get into the book of Revelation wanting to hear about the Antichrist and the mark of the beast and all these things, and you spend several months looking at the seven churches, really dissecting your own life, uh, saying, Lord, am I in right relationship with you in this season of time in which the rapture could happen any time? And, uh, and so sometimes that's tough because you're like, hey, let's get on to the, the, the meat of the book here. And, and I'm, I don't want to just sit here and say, Lord, am I lukewarm or is there compromise or... Um, I lost my first love, but yet it tells us in Peter that judgment must first come in the house of the Lord, that it's God's design that um, we would first look at Christians and say, are we the Christians we're supposed to be? And we discover in Jude and 1 John that there are believers that are not in the place there to be that do get left behind because they have such a life of compromise. And uh, we see in in 1 John 2.28 where he he gives the the warning and the command to abide in him, little children, so you don't shrink away in shame at his appearing. Uh, In Jude, uh, it mentions this as as well, that there are some that are going to make it those who do make it, but they barely make it their own garments smelling with the sin they were a part of uh, as they're being raptured uh, into heaven. And then, of course, Jesus says uh, the warnings each time he taught, saying that, watch, be ready. Don't be in a place of worldliness or compromise. And he says, what is it? The cares of this life the deceitfulness of riches, the desire for other things keep you in a place where you're not ready and that day come upon you as a snare. And immediately they're crying out, but Lord, Lord, not me. I'm, I'm, I'm here, man. I'm prophesying in your name. I'm working miracles in your name. I'm, I'm, and, and he says, you haven't been doing my will. You're a person living in lawlessness, a person caught up in iniquity, You're not in an obedient life doing my will. And so it's a, it's a, it's, it's, you say, well, where is the cutoff? How does it, we don't know how it's going to be judged. Jesus says in Matthew 13, it's in various things. You have obvious, like the seed, the word of God goes on the street and the bird representing Satan. He tells us there in Matthew 13, if you read on down, he interprets that parable that steals away the seed and the heart becomes hard and, and the person never becomes uh, a person to bear fruit, becomes somebody who's right with God. But then there's others where the seed goes in, but it's on thin soil. 
And so the plant immediately starts looking like, wow, it's really quick. I thought it'd be a couple of weeks before we started seeing the green uh, leaves part of the plant coming up, but it's coming up immediately. And look, it looks like it's bearing fruit quickly. Wow, this is going to be a, a great season. But really, it just went down three inches and the root system started going sideways and started going up, but it didn't have root in itself. And this is the key. It didn't have root in itself. And so when the sun came out, the few inches got dried out quickly and the plant died. But what was the root in itself? He says the ability to handle trials. The ability to, it says, because of the word, they shriveled up and died. In other words, the challenges of your life having to make a complete turnaround. Uh, often uh, with people, I, you know, we have uh, a couple that come, come to church and, and they were wanting some counseling with their child. They were having problems with it and they, they just started coming to church. It was their second week and, and in the conversation with them, they live together, but they're not married. And this child isn't their child. It's actually a child from another relationship she had uh, before they met, but they've been living together for a few years, and now they're having a problem raising this junior high uh, person, and, and they're like, what, what do we do? And it's like, well, <laughs> the first step is you need to understand that you're in fornication. No, no, I'm a follower, but we started coming to church last week, and we're Christians now, we're following Jesus. Well, you know, there's several passages, and 1 Corinthians 9, it says, those who fornicate, they shall not inherit the kingdom of heaven. And so in a lot of churches, they could have just continued to live together like that for 20 years without ever seeing it as sin, repenting of their sin and getting married. And and at this point, they still are like, well, I guess we could get married, but I don't see why. Um, There's not a repentiveness over it. There's There's not a prick in their heart that, I am sinning against God. It's more of a, a, a thing of, well, you know, financially it works better if we stay single or taxes or whatever. I don't know. But there's going to be a lot of people that, oh, yeah, I go to church, I read the Bible, and yeah, I'm living with my girlfriend, but, you know, who cares about that? That doesn't mean anything. You know, uh, that was a financial decision we, we made just not to be married or, you know, um, her parents are Catholics and I'm Methodist, so we just didn't want to upset everybody. So whatever the reason was, there's, there's people sort of in this state without a genuine commitment to follow the word of God. And so when the word says you're in sin and the wages of your sin is death, and they're looking at the word going, well, I just don't agree with that part of the Bible then. Um, Something happens. The word itself, the sun beats, dries them out, and they die. And then also the seed goes into the good soil, but weeds come. And it says there, it's just the cares of this life. It's just, I'm so busy. I'm so worried. I'm so, you know, I've got soccer over here. I've got, get the ballet lessons over here. I've got a, you know, this business over there, and I got that other business over there, and I've got a, you know, uh, take care of my parents over here, and I've got, you know, I'm just, bah, 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 bah. I'm just so, I just can't stop and really think about where I'm at with God. And so just the cares of this life, and then the deceitfulness of riches. 
As soon as I get enough money, then I can really focus on obeying God. But until I get enough money, I can't really, really focus on putting the Lord first in my life. And then it just said a desire for other things. Just, there's other things more important to me than God, than the Bible, than the church, than obeying the Lord. Um, it's just that simple. There's more important things for me to spend my money on than tithing. There's more important things for me to put my money in, or my time into than reading the Bible. I've got to do this in the morning and that in the afternoon and this on the weekends. And, you know, I, I want God to be the first, but it just can't happen with my lifestyle and my schedule right now. And there's going to be a group of those people and they're going to not be raptured. And, and the Bible makes it clear that on that, that point, it's going to become a snare to them as well to everybody else on the earth. And so when we come into chapters 12, 13, and 14, we, we realize now that the tribulation period is a seven-year period. The Bible says the earth has never in the past or ever will in the future see such a trial upon it. The first three-and-a-half-year period is God putting trials on the earth through all kinds of cataclysmic events. Uh, sea life dying, the waters being polluted, uh, the stars falling out of the sky, the things that God has just kept by his power in control. You know, the, the, the 14 pounds pressure per square inch of, of gravitational pull on the planet Earth. Uh, move the moon just a tiny bit away and that changes. So how much water is covering the earth and how deep and how severe the waves are, all of that, just a tiny little bit of movement between the distance of the moon and the earth and things completely change on this planet. All of a sudden, you have parts of the planet that are covered in snow that won't be. (laughs) You have parts of the planet that are warm that'll be freezing. Um, All of a sudden, the, the... where the water line was is all of a sudden now changed by five miles inland or outways, either way. So it's amazing when you realize how the Bible says that God holds all things in the power of, of his hand. He really does. But in that first three and a half years, there's just going to be cataclysmic events. And it's a part of trying to get man to realize there is a God who made this place and who has been in control of it. And they're not wanting God in control. And God is essence saying, okay, I'll back away from being in control. But understand, this is what it looks like. During that three and a half year period, you have the Antichrist. This man empowered by Satan coming in and taking over the world's power. This is what he's trying to do. The world is going to become what's important will become ten nations that once made up the Roman Empire. So right now, you look, at, you look at the news. If you're in England or China or whatever, you click on the news, you're going to hear about what's going on in, in the United States of America. You say, well, why, am, why don't I hear every time I turn on the news what's going on in New Zealand or Haiti or, you know, where else? I mean, some, there's some pretty big places, Brazil, Brazil is bigger than the United States. 
If you added a Texas to the United States, that'd be the same size as Brazil. That's not counting Alaska and Hawaii, but the continental United States. But yet, it's not that important on the world scheme as the United States. Or, and what about Israel, this little tiny place? It's always mentioned. Well, in that seven-year tribulation period, the focal part of the world will be these ten nations. Three of them are taken out by the Antichrist, and then he, in taking those three, he then comes back, and he ends up taking over the power of all ten of those nations, which are now into seven nations, or kingdoms, I should say. And in that three-and-a-half-year period, the temple's built in Jerusalem. He proclaims himself to be Christ. And when he does that, the Jews that have fully been believing on him as the Messiah, they see it, their eyes are spiritually opened. Just as the 144,000 sealed prophets of God have been preaching throughout the world, the two witnesses that couldn't be killed that were there in Jerusalem testifying that these are facts, their eyes are open and they realize Jesus is the Messiah. We rejected him, we crucified him. And now they reject the Antichrist, and he's been waiting for the love of the Jewish people. These are God's chosen people. He wants their admiration, and they reject him. At that point, he just wants to kill them, and two-thirds of them die. He, he just spews out supernaturally the wrath. It comes out like a flood of waters. They're fleeing uh, into the country of Jordan today, uh, into the one part uh, which is the Edomite part, where the rock city Petra is today. And they flee, they're fleeing there, and this water comes out to consume them, and then God makes a, a big hole, it tells us, and swallows up the water. And, but a, a percent get there, in the second three and a half year period, God protects them there, but the rest of the world now is just, he's mad, he's angry. He's just wanting to dominate the world uh, in a fierce way. But the world loves him. He's, he's just, there's a supernatural love. People that hate God, hate the nature of God. They love this prideful, arrogant, um, satanic nature. Jesus said, I've come in my father's nature and you hate me. There's one coming in his own name, his own nature, and you'll love him. He's come in the nature of, of Lucifer. This one who said, I will be lifted up. I will be as the most high God. They love him. And in that time, so now we're, we're getting the second three and a half year period, there's an assassination attempt on him. And he is mortally wounded. It appears that he dies and he raises from the dead. We know from Zechariah that his right eye and his right arm are no longer in use. So now he's, he's seriously uh, limping, <laughs> simply maimed, but the world loves him even more. And at this point, he doesn't try to hide it anymore. He just begins to blaspheme the God of the Jews. He begins to blaspheme the God of the Christians. And he taunts God and God has given him now all power and authority. He lets him go. They're all lying powers and authority. He's calling fire out of heaven. He looks like he has the power to heal, to even raise from the dead. And the world now is more in love with him than ever before. And now he gives the decree to kill everybody who doesn't worship him. And the way you worship, to show that you worship him is you take the mark 
upon your forehead or your hand. And somehow it has to do with the number 666. And if you don't take that number, you can't buy, you can't sell, you can't hide. You will be found, you will be tortured, you will be put to death. Um, And at that time it appears that he has all power, he's cursing, blaspheming God, and all the people that don't submit to him, it appears that they have no power, that if there is another God, they're sure not helping him because he has all power to take them out. And it's sort of a rough couple of chapters, chapters 12 and 13, because it's talking about Satan and his power and his victory and that the Christians are just powerless for this season. And indeed it is. And again, I just say, if you're, backup plan is to receive Christ in the tribulation period. I do not think it's going to work for most people um, to, to believe in the Lord in that seven-year tribulation period. It's going to be incredibly rough but to maintain not denying she Jesus under such persecution. It's going to be uh, almost virtually impossible. Very, very few, I believe, will make it without denying Jesus because of the, the torture and the pressure and the starvation, and, uh, and so forth. Well, after this sort of very dark couple of chapters, we come to chapter 14, verse 1, and then I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion. The Mount Zion is, is a name for all of the hills around Jerusalem. We know later that the particular one they're talking about is the Mount of Olives, the very one Jesus ascended from into heaven. Um, And this lamb is there standing on Mount Zion and with him 144,000 having his father's name written on their foreheads. This Back in chapter seven, before Satan began to get people to put stuff on their foreheads, Jesus had these 144,000 put the mark and whatever that mark was, it gave glory to the father, ownership of the father through the blood and the cross of Jesus Christ. And they through this seven-year tribulation period, have not denied the Lord. It appears that they also uh, didn't have the power to, to survive the Antichrist. So whether this is a scene where you're looking at these 144,000 in, in the, the Mount Zion of heaven, in Hebrews it tells us that there is a, uh, the Jerusalem of heaven, that when there's a new heavens and a new earth, that God's also going to make a new Jerusalem. And so whether it's showing these guys that now they're dead, but yet they're alive with the Lord, and he's the lamb, as we saw him earlier, the lamb of God in heaven, as though he had been slain, or whether this is in the tribulation period, they made it through, they didn't die. These 144,000, even though they were persecuted, uh, God didn't let them be killed. We don't know. Um, But they're standing with the lamb, and there they're giving glory to the Father. Again, a, a lamb is an interesting creature because it can't make it on its own. There's no way you can have wild sheep. Um, again, it goes back to uh, the evolution versus creation debate. Um, there's no point where sheep can make it on their own. You ha- they have to have a shepherd caring for them. 
helping them get to places to eat, to drink. A sheep in its lifetime will fall over on its side and can't get up. It has to have a shepherd get up. And if it lays there for just a few minutes, it's called cast. It casts where it, it, its stomach doesn't have the ability to, to work um, because the, the, the acids will build up. The shepherd actually, even if it's a, just a few seconds, the sheep is down. The shepherd has to quickly pick it up, hold it up because it can't, it doesn't have the strength for its legs because it's going through this cast process and it has to rub its tummy to, to get all the gases out of its stomach or it will die. It will basically explode on itself through its own stomach acids. Um, sheep are not smart. <laughs> they don't have any defenses. They don't have claws or teeth. They, they can't fight off even the simplest of animals. They, they have to be protected, fed, and kept alive and cared for by somebody. And uh, again, the, the lamb... Uh, it's, a, it's a meek, meek creature. And um, here again, we, we see our Lord Jesus as the lowliest, if you would, the simplest of creatures. But yet, this lamb would also be the, the very instrument that God used to shed its blood um, for the sins of man. And Jesus became the lamb of God. Man was unwilling, the end of the Old Testament, man was unwilling to give a sheep without blemish. It would give the crippled, the blind, and God said, I'll give you my lamb, my son. And after four years, 400 years of silence between the Old Testament and the New Testament, the voice came of John the Baptist, behold, the lamb of God. And in John chapter one, verse 29, the next day, John, this is John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So man was unwilling to give his lamb without spot or blemish. 400 years of silence, God says, I will give you my lamb, the perfect lamb, my son, without fault, without sin. And in John 1.35, again the next day, John the Baptist, again, stood with two of his disciples and looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18 and 19, Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by the traditions of your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb, without blemish, without spot. God, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the ultimate power of the universe. How does he come? He comes in human flesh as a lowly man, in a poor house, in a very poor area of Nazareth, in in a poor job of a carpenter, The only description we have of him is he was lowly and meek. And in his presence, you would find a rest for your souls. The only description we have is that of a lamb, not of an aggressive animal, not one that that is, again, uh, you know, the strong lion or the beautiful stallion horse. Um, Just... A very simple, lowly animal 
that was used for sacrifice, uh, that the sins would be covered if it was an actual lamb, but in Jesus, the sins could be taken away. Well, in Revelation 14, 2, and I heard a voice from heaven, like the voice of many waters, and like the voice of loud thunder, and I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps. So now he sees uh, this lamb on the Mount of Zion. He sees 144,000, 12,000 from each tribe uh, of these mighty prophet evangelists uh, of, of the Jews uh, that are in the tribulation period, mighty evangelists going throughout the world. And now the next thing he hears is this, it's like this giant waterfall. And it's thundering. The waters are coming down. Then he hears the harpist. Remember uh, in chapter five, we saw that the elders were doing this. In Psalm 29, three, the voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord is over many waters. You know, the thing with a waterfall, it's so powerful that it fills every single note. And so if you're next to somebody in a waterfall and you could be screaming and they can't hear you because every single note is filled with the sound. It's unique. The waterfall's unique in that way. Because, I mean, you, you know, when we sing, we sing eight or nine notes. And so if you're talking while we're singing, you can hear because you'll be talking at a different note in there than what we're singing. But yet when the Lord speaks, nothing else can be heard because it's, it's every note is filled and this is what he is saying. The, I hear the Lord speaking. And when the Lord speaks, it's thunderous. It's powerful. Nothing else can be heard. The only thing that could be heard, interesting enough, and there's really no reason it should be, but the Lord makes it so, and that is the elders worshiping. Remember in Revelation 5.8, we looked at that. When he had been taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each having a harp and a golden bowls full of incense, which is the prayers of the saints. And so he sees the lamb, the 144,000, the voice of God, like the, a waterfall, a thunder filling. And then what he can hear is that heavenly scene with the angels and the elders singing and worshiping the Lord and playing uh, the instruments of the harp. And then in verse three, they sang as it were a new song before the throne. So earlier we saw the saints, the believers who had been raptured up before the tribulation period started and all the saints that had died uh, before the rapture throughout history, all together worshiping before the lamb. But now this time who we sing worshiping is those who have made it out of the tribulation period. In particular, these 144,000. So again, it, it seems to me that these 144,000 may have died in the tribulation period. The Mount Zion Jesus is on is a spiritual Mount Zion. And these guys have all died and now are with the Lord. That, that would be the most uh, logical that I would think of. Uh, again, Hebrews, it talks about that heavenly 
Jerusalem and the heavenly Mount Zion. And, uh, but notice here, they sang a new song before the throne in verse three, before the four living creatures and the elders, and no one could learn that song except 144,000 who were redeemed, that means bought out of bondage, bought out of slavery from the earth. So these guys had a different song. I think the only reason they could sing it is because it was their testimony. They knew Jesus the Messiah. They rejected him. It's, a, it's astounding to me that in the world, they, they, you can hear stuff on TV like 10%, 20% of the world claims to be atheists. It's ridiculous. Every time they do uh, a, a worldwide look, it's usually right around 3%. I've seen as high as 8% of the world is atheist. But yet with the Hollywood statisticians, you'll hear 18, 20, 25%. It's crazy numbers. It's not true. But for years, it was 3%. But yet, with the Jews, it was about 97% were atheists and 3% believed in God. It was crazy. Just the majority of Jews were atheists. They go to synagogue, but not because they believe in God. It's just part of their tradition. It's like you going to 4th of July. Um, It it had to do with uh, country, and, and it wasn't about truly believing in God. And, uh, and so I think their testimony could be, I was an atheist. I knew all about Jesus being the Messiah. I rejected it. I rejected miracles. I rejected God creating the world. Um, and then, you know, when the tribulation period came and uh, God opened my eyes and and I became a believer. And then God empowered me with this spirit as an, a prophet and, a, and as an evangelist. And, and I've gone throughout the world preaching the gospel. And, and so it's a unique testimony that really nobody else had that except for these 144,000 that God uniquely called and anointed for that seven-year tribulation period. And in verse 4, these are the ones who are not defiled with women, for they were virgins. So um, don't take it personally, ladies. Women defile you. No, it's not what it's trying to say here. It's just trying to say that they chose not to marry, just like the apostle Paul and Barnabas chose not to marry because they, they knew they were to be traveling and they knew they'd be persecuted. And, and Paul just said, I, I'm not going to drag a wife through that. Very simply. It wasn't because he thought being not married would make him holier or closer to God. It was just simply, you know, I go into a town, I start preaching Christ where it had never been preached before, and they say, hey, get that guy and beat him up. That's one thing. It's like, hey, get that guy and his wife and beat him up. That's another thing. Get that guy, his wife, and his kids and beat him up. You know, hey, rip his clothes off and beat him with a whip. Hey, rip his wife's clothes off and rip, beat her with a whip. It just changes things. Okay, Paul, we're going to throw you into prison until you deny Christ. And we're going to throw your wife and kids into prison until they deny Christ. It's, it's a different thing. And so Paul, knowing that he would not be settling down, he wouldn't be staying somewhere, he was going to be traveling the rest of his life, preaching the gospel where it had never been preached before, that he did not want to put a wife through that or have a family raised through that. 
So knowing the calling of God in his life, he chose. And this is what these guys did too. They knew as it was a seven-year tribulation period, they knew they'd be traveling constantly throughout the world. Wherever they went, they would be being chased by the Antichrist and his military forces to torture them, to put them to death, and that it wasn't a time to stop and play house. It was a time uh, to preach the gospel and most likely cost them their life after being tortured. And so these guys uh, were just focused without looking at being married or having families. These are the ones who follow the lamb wherever he goes. So you're gonna go there and they're gonna torture you and kill you. I'm going. Remember the one point where Paul was in Jerusalem and before he got there, Agapus and his four daughters prophesied and said, if you go to Jerusalem, you're going to be tied up. You're going to be imprisoned. And then you're going to be killed. So they said, so God's showing you don't go there. And Paul says, no, I'm still going there. And they're like, no, the word of the Lord was. And Paul says, yes, that is the word of the Lord, but I'm still going to Jerusalem. And these prophets and the elders were arguing with Paul going, no, God gave you the prophecy to tell you, therefore, don't go. And and Paul's saying, no, God gave me the prophecy, so I'm in the right mind frame uh, getting there because I understand I'm getting arrested. I'm getting put in prison, and I will die. I'm ready. That's That's where I'm called. Not turn around and go the other way. And so it was a bit confusing. And so these guys had a word from the Lord to go, and wherever he led them, uh, in many cases it meant incredible difficulty, torture, and death, but they would go no matter what it meant. For them, they were going to follow the Lamb. And these were redeemed among men, being firstfruits to God and to the Lamb. And the firstfruits, again, is the, uh, the, the first usage of that is in the tithe. The top 10% is the Lord's. But that word later was used for just the best. Uh, the word also became preeminent. So Jesus, it tells us in Colossians, is the first fruits raised from the dead. Well, was Jesus the first person ever raised from the dead? No. There's people in the Old Testament raised from the dead. Jesus in his ministry raised people from the dead. But who was the most important person ever raised from the dead? <laughs> Jesus. He was the first fruits raised from the dead. And in essence, these 144,000s These guys, it tells us, these are the redeemed among men having or being the first fruits to God to the Lamb. That these 144,000 guys who received the Lord in the tribulation period for this seven years so perfectly gave themselves to God above everything on this earth. They were an example of losing all taking up the cross and following Jesus like no other Christians in history. There was just a very pure surrender without uh, falter in in giving their lives to the Lord. And so again, these 144,000, as they come and they sing to the Lord uh, after uh, their death and, and now being in heaven, there is just a song that nobody else can sing except them because God just did such a pure 
genuine work in their life and they surrendered their life in such a unique, pure way in this tribulation period. These 12,000 from each tribe. And again, I, I might just stop here and add. In Romans 11, Paul says this phrase, and all Israel will be saved. Now people say, oh, all Jews throughout time are gonna be saved. It doesn't say that. It just is saying this, that there is gonna be a point on earth where Jews who are alive on earth will give their lives to Christ. And in the tribulation period, starting with these 144,000, there was a pure surrender of salvation. And as these guys went and preached the gospel to the four corners of the world, Jews throughout the world were saved. And then at the three and a half year mark, when the Antichrist said, I'm God, as he puts himself in the Holy of Holies, all the Jews worldwide reject him. And at that point, all Israel is saved. All Jews on the planet who have heard the testimony of the 144,000 Jewish evangelists, the two witnesses we talked about for three and a half years, they were indestructible until God took the protection and then they were killed and then they were ascended into heaven. Their testimony that day and night, 24 hours a day, the world could hear them and they were putting plagues upon the earth and, and, uh, and so forth. That the Jews at that point rejected the Antichrist at that three and a half year period and all did believe in Jesus. And so it, it is a pure, unique thing God did. And, and really it's this. God, he said to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I will be your God, you will be my people forever. And this is God being faithful to his word. And he actually is allowing this seven-year tribulation period to break the hearts of the Jews. And they're hard-hearted people, stiff-necked people. It's what we hear all the way through the Old Testament. And God has to create an environment that's so unique that even the most stiff-necked people on earth would be humbled and broken and, and would turn to God. And that's what's happened here. And in verse five, and in their mouth was found no deceit. These 144,000 were just pure Christians with no guile. And they were without fault. I love this. They were without fault before the throne of God. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is found in Jude 24. It's just a little paragraph of a book, right before the book of Revelation, actually. In Jude 24, it says this, Now to him who's able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. Let me read that again. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. Isn't God good? And for every one of us, he's gonna present us faultless on that day. And this is what he did with these incredibly stubborn, hard-hearted Jews that rejected Jesus uh, until the tribulation period. Another great verse in Ephesians 5, this is what our Lord Jesus, our husband, does for us, the church. And he, Ephesians 5, 25 
Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and what? Gave himself for her. Jesus laid down his life, dying upon a cross, that he could gain his bride, us, the church. And after that, what does he do? After he raised from the dead, and now he has his bride, the church, he now, he might sanctify, cleanse her with the washing of the water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having what? Spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. Jesus daily is at work with his blood. As we come and confess our sin, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1, 9. God's Holy Spirit will prick our heart Oh, Lord, forgive me. And there's all kinds of other things that he could prick our hearts about, but he doesn't overwhelm us. On that one thing, we just say, God, forgive me, and he cleanses us from all kinds of stuff we don't even know about. But you picture a a wedding dress. (laughs) And actually, Jesus, when he was transfigured, it said that his robes and that of Moses and Elijah it was whiter than any launder on earth could get. So uh, the righteous robes of righteousness is a white that we don't ever see on earth. But Jesus is making our white wedding dress, if you would, and then keeping it cleansed, keeping it without wrinkle, keeping it without blemish. And one day when we stand before him, we are gonna stand without fault, without wrinkle or blemish or spot or any way, they're going to say, this is righteous, justified, justified, just as if you never sinned. (laughs) That's a great way to remember justification, huh? Just as if you've never sinned. God takes away our sin and scatters as far as his east is to the west to be remembered no more. Well, back in chapter 14, verse 6, Then I saw another angel. So now we're seeing some angels um, being freed up to do stuff they've never been freed up to do before for planet Earth. So this angel is flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tongue, and people, tribe, tongue, and people. Just stop here and think about this a minute. What are we seeing here in this seven-year tribulation period? Man is saying, God, we want you out of here. We're tired of your restrictions. We're tired of your Judeo-Christian ethic. We're tired of you telling us this is moral and this is not moral and this is sin and this is righteous. And we, we want to decide for ourselves which is righteous until the whole world begins to become homosexual like the days of Sodom and Gomorrah, which God calls an abomination. Read Romans chapter one. It says that that homosexual permeated society is full of every kind of evil, inventing evil. Second Timothy three tells us it's lovers of themselves, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, brutal, haters, uh, bitter, uh, disobedient to parents. They don't honor anybody. They're, they're just these people that want to create their own religion and, and they, they, they only want to listen to things that tickle their ears. They don't want to listen to the truth. And God finally just says, I'm out of the way. 
Let me get out of the way. He stands back. And the flood now just comes flooding in with every kind of doctrine of demon, every kind of thought of man. Every man does what's right in his own eyes. And this earth just becomes permeated with whatever man invents to be the way he wants it. And what happens is you get a society that's just brutal, full of murder and deceit and hate. And it's just a a society, uh, just to live in it, even for a day, would be like hell. And um, as man is just living in that, this guy appears who seems to say, peace, peace. He doesn't bring peace, but everybody believes him to bring peace. He deceives the world. And in this time where man's rejecting God, God just so loves man. He still wishes, desires all men to be saved and and to come to the knowledge of truth, even though they're living in blasphemy, even though they want a world that hates him, just like it says also, the, the world would be as the days of Noah. The days of Noah, it says the man, the heart of man was evil continuously. Violence permeated the world. So those are the two pictures it gives us. Jesus says it'll be like the days of Noah before the flood. It'll be like the days of Sodom and Gomorrah before uh, God destroyed that. Both of those societies, God had to destroy. There was no way they, they could ever get out of that rut. They would just pollute the world. It was just a, it was a disease that would just continue to kill everybody. So he destroyed the whole world with a flood with Noah. He destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, fire from heaven. But this whole world, but God still loves man. The Bible tells us that God does not rejoice in the destruction of the wicked. So, so in that time, he, he empowers 144,000, 12,000 from each tribe of Israel just to go and to preach the gospel through the world. He gets two uh, witnesses that cannot be killed, that are in Jerusalem and the whole world sees them 24 hours a day as they also stand against the Antichrist and preach the truth. So the whole world every day is, is seeing the powerful working of God in the preaching of evangelism. On top of that, what does he do? He has an angel flying through the sky preaching the gospel. <laughs> You know, you you say, well, why do we need to go preach the gospel? Couldn't God just sort of stick his face out of the sky going, hey, wah, you know? You look up and there's this beard hanging and blowing in the wind and these eyes sticking out and, um, God, I sent my only begotten son to die for you. And just powerfully, anointedly, just preach the gospel and just, whoa, you know? I mean, God can do anything, right? It's not God's will. He tells us it's God's will that man, that he would fill man with his spirit and man would be the evangelist and that we have that responsibility. Jesus said for all of us, go into all the world and preach the gospel. It's for us. He says in 2 Corinthians 16 that there's some among you who are sinning. Why? Because you're not preaching the gospel. There's some amongst you who have not the knowledge of Christ, and I speak this to your shame. It's not the sin of commission, like lying or stealing or cheating. It's the sin of omission, not doing something that you should do. 
So we are to preach the gospel in season and out of season. It says in 2 Timothy 4, men are gonna reject us for the most part. We gotta be ready for that. But those little tiny treasures in the field are out there and when we find them, we're gonna be used of God and it's gonna be a joyful thing. Um, Jesus says, you say there's three more months and then comes the harvest, look up. The harvest is already white, which is, means it's over-rotting. There's people around you, it doesn't, it doesn't look like it, it doesn't seem like it, but if you just simply step out and say, look, you're a sinner, your sins are separating you from God, but God has an answer. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to pay for your sins, that he could justly forgive your sins, having been punished in your place, All you have to do is believe upon him, surrender your life to him, start living for him, and you will have eternal life. It's that simple. They'll either look at you and say, I hate your guts, Um, don't talk to me anymore, or they'll say, you know what, I've been burdened about this, and this morning I got up just going, what am I gonna do? The weight of my sin is upon me. I I have a constant fear that if I were to die, I'm gonna go to hell. I didn't know what to do. Tell me more. And that's a great thing when it happens, guys. And it, and it does happen. Um, I had, I had a, was, oh, maybe a couple of years ago now, but I, I had a, a gal call me and, and, uh, and she says, do you remember? And it was like 15 years earlier. I was at a gas station and, and you handed me a track. I, and I'm, I did it quite a bit. Uh, there's times where I've done that and I handed her a track and she put it and it was in the bottom of her purse. You never know what's at the bottom of the lady's purse, right? But 15 years later, she pulled it out, read it, got saved. I had the church uh, phone number on there and she just said, hey, I want him to know. His name's Brian. Uh, I prayed. I'm, 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 I, when he gave that to me, I was mad at him. I was gonna throw it on the ground I, and I ended up throwing it in my purse instead and uh, I received the Lord. You, you just never know. And so again, uh, it's a beautiful thing, but there is a point where God's gonna pull out all stops and notice what he does. 144,000, two witnesses, the whole world looks on him every day and he actually has angels <laughs> flying through the sky. And that's pretty cool. If you saw an angel flying through the sky, you go, whoa, what is that? It's got wings, look at that. Six wings maybe, maybe it's one of the sheriff's Look at those, it's got four different faces. It's huge or whatever, it's glowing. I, I don't, it's, it's gonna stop, it's gonna stop you, right? What in the world's that angel doing? And then he's preaching to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. And he says with a loud voice, number one, fear God. Proverbs says the beginning of wisdom, the beginning of knowledge is to fear God. And secondly is give glory to him. The word glory in the Hebrew is kabod, which means weight. Give God the weight he deserves. So often people are afraid of a person lacking money, future, not being married or being married, whatever. They have fears of things and and they should fear God. He's the one that's gonna decide their eternal destiny. And, and the fear, you say, I'm afraid of hurting people. You should be afraid of hurting God. He made you wonderfully for his purpose, for his glory. And so now we should give the weight. 
What, what is the weight? You know, some of you guys love sports and you give it a lot of weight. It's the most important thing in your life. You've got all kinds of clothes and, and you know, I've been in some people's house, their lampshades, their table, their every picture on the wall has something to do with their sport. Well, what kind of weight should we give the Bible? The Bible, God, according to scripture, we should meditate in God's word day and night. We should give it a lot of weight. Um, are we giving God the glory, the kabod that's due him? And then he says in verse seven, the hour of judgment has come. Worship him who made heaven and earth and the sea and the springs of water. The time's come. It's, you're up. It's over. It doesn't, you don't have time to, to, to repent. You don't have time to get things right. You don't have another year to, to live in a way that would be putting God first and his kingdom and his righteousness. That's gonna happen, right? I mean, we're sitting here tonight and it's very possible this is your last day to live. I had somebody tell me this, this week that their, their, their friend, um, 40-something years old, just killed over dead. We actually have a brother in our church that his bro- actual brother, uh, 43 years old, just passed away just a couple weeks ago. Um, those are two people right there just in the last couple of weeks that thought they had 30 more years <laughs> to, to, to give to serve, to grow, to whatever it is, to, to walk in a, in a way that would be the person they should be. We don't know. The day of judgment is gonna come. And here he's saying the time is up. And notice in verse eight, now we have another angel. God's just disbanding angels. And this angel now followed by saying, Babylon has fallen, has fallen, that great city because she has made all the nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. We're gonna talk about that. Chapter 17, 18, we're gonna talk about Babylon. We're gonna get into all of that. So I don't need to do that tonight. But this one is, is promoting, is speaking judgment against uh, the, the city where the Antichrist is propagating his false religion and, and, and controlling the economy of the world. And then there's another angel disbanded. Followed them, saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast, his image receives the mark on his forehead or on his hand. And in verse 10, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and the presence of the lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends, how long? forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night who worship the beast, his image, who receives the mark of his name. So whether you emotionally are wanting to worship this beast, the Antichrist, or whether you just give in and say, I want to eat, so here, I'll take the mark. I, I want to buy and sell, I'll take the mark. I don't really believe in him. I'm not going to worship him. But here, give me the mark because I just want to not be at odds against the powers that be. Either way, whether it's of worship or out of cowardice, they're going to burn in hell forever and ever. And here's another thing we see. Not only is there burning, the Bible tells us there's complete darkness. There's weeping and gnashing of teeth. There's an extraordinary pain. Here's another thing. You never get rest. 
You're always exhausted. That's hell, isn't it? Have you ever been in that place where you never, you, you go days without ever getting a good night's sleep and you get up and you, it's like, it's, what do you do, you know? That's just for eternity. You, you just, you feel like you just never got to sleep and you're just constantly feeling exhausted. Well, in verse 12 here, here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God, the faith of Jesus, Then I heard the voice of heaven saying to me, write, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the spirit, that that he may rest from their labors and their works follow them. So on the other side, blessed are those who die in the Lord. You've gone through a horrible seven-year tribulation period. Uh, It's been hell on earth for you, but you didn't take the mark of the beast. You didn't give in. It cost you greatly. You were tormented. You were persecuted. You were tortured. You were put to death, but you did not deny Christ. And now you are going to be forever blessed. The patience, the word impatience there in verse 12 or endurance, you hung in there till the end. And in verse 14, and I looked and behold, the white cloud and on the cloud set one like the son of man having Uh, on his head a gold crown, in his hand a sharp sickle. This is Jesus. He said when in in Acts chapter one, he ascended into heaven in the clouds and the angel said, he's gonna come back in the same way. And we're gonna get a fuller picture later where he's coming on his horse and we're all coming with him and he lands on the Mount of Olives. But here's a little sneak preview pic. Jesus is coming back. And here's some angels with them. Again, in verse 15, another angel came out of the temple crying with a loud voice to him who said on the cloud, thrust your sickle and reap. The time has come for you to reap for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So this is a, the, the bent uh, knife, if you would, a machete thing where you go to cut the wheat and you slice it. And the word here for ripe is it's overripe. It's rotten. It's, it's not usable anymore. The, what you're going to reap, it's, it's rotten uh, wheat, if you would. And in verse 16, he who sat on the cloud thrust in the sickle on the earth and the earth was reaped. And another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, who also having a sharp sickle. And then another angel came out from the altar who had the power of the fire and cried out with a loud cry to him who was on the sharp sickle saying, thrust in your sharp sickle and gather the cluster of the vine and the earth for her grapes are fully ripe. So the angel thrust the sickle into the earth and gathered the wine of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trampled outside the city. We're going to again learn later as we cover this in the valley of Armageddon, uh, the Megiddo Valley. The blood came up out of the winepress to the horse's bridles for 1,600 furlongs which is a little under 200 miles. So the bridle of a horse, four to five feet high, around 200 miles. So again, as we go on, we're gonna see at a point where all the kingdoms of the world come together. They're fighting against um, each other and they're fighting against the Antichrist. And this battle's going on with swords and spears and horses, which very possibly, uh, if you look at it, probably 
uh, some kind of nuclear explosions have just decimated electronics in the, in the tribulation period. So they're back to horses and swords and spears and so forth. But all of these uh, billions of people come together in battle in the valley of Armageddon right outside of Jerusalem there, right outside uh, in, in the most fertile ground on planet earth, the most fertile soil uh, on earth. And there in this battle, they're fighting against the Antichrist and each other. And then Jesus comes with us, lands on the Mount of Olives. We stay there in Jerusalem. He goes down. And soon as they see Jesus, everybody says, it's him we hate. And they begin to fight against him. And Jesus there takes in his sickle, if you would, and he begins to finish the slaughter. And the blood rises. And again, whether this is a, a poetic picture, if you would, uh, rather than an exact you know, scientific measurement, probably just sort of a, a picture of just saying the blood just is soaking the valley like a, like a lake, if you would. Um, and from one end of the country to the other end of the country of Israel today. Basically, it's interesting that uh, from border to border Israel today with what it covers about 200 miles. So it's just flooding with the blood. And this is, again, the beginning of the judgment of God. And we sort of stop there and pick up uh, looking at this more, um, filling in more of the, the picture. Well, Lord, we come before you and we hear your desire to save man, even at these last moments of the tribulation period, you send angels out, <laughs> crying out to man of every tongue, of every language, of every tribe out in the middle of nowhere, crying out to man to still be saved in these last seconds before uh, judgment is gonna come to all men. You're still at the very last second desiring that men would be saved and come to you. We hear your heart right now. How you want our neighbors, our coworkers, our relatives, how you long for them to be saved. How you hung on that cross, not for us to, to be casual about leading men to you. You were willing to have your beard ripped out and willing to be crucified on a cross. And here we are now, Lord, in that place that we need to hear your heart like those angels who were let loose to, to preach the gospel. They heard your heart. Let us hear your heart, how you love man. That God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, the lamb of God, that men would not perish but have everlasting life. Not that they just wouldn't go to hell, but they would have you in heaven with all the joys and rewards of heaven for eternity. Please, Lord, put a fire in our soul right now. Put a love for the same love you have for mankind. Please, Lord, let the love of Christ constrain us. Let us be faithful in season and out of season to preach the word. We know that men will reject. You tell us that, that we'll have scars, that we will be hated because we're telling men that God loves them. They'll hate us for that. That Christ paid for their sins, that they could be forgiven, and they hate us for that. We know it's spiritual. We know that men in their own rebellion don't want to be told, even by God, 
what they can and can't do. It's our own rebellious hearts, our, our lack of humility. But Lord, we come and we humble ourselves before you, our creator, you, are God. You made us for your pleasure. You made us in your image for your will. Forgive us, cleanse us. Make us now, Lord, what you have, the light of this world, the salt of this earth, that men would see our good works and come unto the Father, that men would hear our words and fall upon their face and repent. Please, Lord, let us be your ambassador, that through us you would plead with man to turn from their wicked ways and turn to God and be saved. Continue, Lord, to speak to us as we study through Revelation, to hear your heart like we hear it nowhere else in the scriptures on these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen, amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful night. If you need prayer, come forward, pray for you, or grab somebody next to you. Bye-bye. Thank you, Lord.